invite your attention back to the book of Exodus as we go to chapter 20. We're going to talk about the Ten Commandments for ten weeks. Now, last week we began our study, and we talked about the first commandment and actually the thoughts behind that about do we need rules, do we need commandments. And the truth is, this generation, and I'm not just talking about millennials, I'm talking about what's sometimes referred to as the baby busters, the baby boomers, and even some degree to those who are maybe older than that, we struggle with rules, commands, and obligations. When someone says, you must do this, people almost want to immediately say, no, I'll do it my way. But you know, sometimes when we draw conclusions like that, we don't realize that if you go back to the Bible, you can find people like our generation over and over again. Let me give you a good illustration. If you go to the book of Hosea, just like the pluralism that's a part of our nation currently has affected us to the point where we live in spiritual confusion, you can go to the book of Hosea to chapter 4 and verse 6, and he says, My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. And then when he gets over to Hosea chapter 8, and he's looking at all the things they have done, and he's talking about their idolatry, and this is where I'm trying to tie all of this in. He makes a statement in verse 12, I have written for him great things of my law. Him referring to Israel. But they were considered a strange thing. You know, when you start talking about the rules, the commandments, the obligations that God places before us, there's so many people today who look at that as if this is something odd or something strange because we're taught you ought to be tolerant of everybody's views. You ought to accept people regardless of of what they practice, whether it's homosexuality or whether it's the murdering of their babies or whether it is adultery or whether it is anything else that we ought to just accept it. And because of that, it becomes a strange thing. Well, the commandments to Israel were clear, they were concise, and they could be understood. So here's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to look at two very basic ideas. We're going to look, first of all, at the meaning of this second commandment. What does it say? And then we want to talk about the message of it. What does that really say to us today as we read and understand this commandment, as we start trying to apply it in our situations? It's always good to analyze a command when you see it in the Bible to get the full understanding. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at verses 4 through 6, and we're going to try to break it down. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. Any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity upon the fathers and upon the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. But, 
showing loving kindness or showing mercy to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. First of all, you. When he says you, he's referring to Israel. It's very easy when we read the Old Testament to say, well, this is everybody's Ten Commandments. No, that's not correct. These are Israel's Ten Commandments. How do I know? Because Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 2 and 3 says, The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. The Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us. Those who are here today, all of us who are alive. He didn't make that covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That covenant was made subsequent to that. It was made with the Israelites at the foot of Mount Sinai or Horeb. It was not made with the Gentiles. It was made with Israel. Shall not make. To make something means to fashion it, to devise it, to construct it. So they're not to be actively involved in the creation of these carved images. That is the same thing that would be involved as in a molten image. A carved image is where they would take a piece of wood and they would use some tool to try to shape it to be like something else. A molten image is where they, for instance, will make a mold and pour the metal in it, usually a very precious metal, and shape it after they have molded it. Deuteronomy 27, verse 15, curses one who makes a carved or molded image. You get to chapter 34, verse 17 of Exodus, you shall not or shall make no molded gods for yourselves. You back up to Exodus 32, verse 4, talking about Aaron. He received the gold from their hand. He fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. And then he said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So God is saying, you don't, you Israel, make, that is fashion or construct, any likeness. And then he specifically begins to say that's in the, the heavens above. You think about the birds. That's on the earth. You think about the animals that would wander upon the earth. Beneath the earth, worms, other things. Beneath the water, you would think about the fish. You would even think as he talks about the celestial bodies. So he says, I don't want any likeness to be made like me. In fact, he says you don't bow down to them or serve them. To bow down would be to offer an act of homage, an act of devotion to say, I am worshiping this idol. But then he says, nor serve them. That means you go out under the name of that God. You do things in the name of that God. The reasoning, God said, I'm a jealous God. The jealousy is, is that God will permit no others. He will not allow anything else to receive His glory. Exodus 34, verse 14. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Nahum 1, verses 2 and 3. God is jealous, and the Lord avenges 
the Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he will reserve wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. It's obvious that God stands above the fray here and says, I am jealous. I don't want you to worship any other. But now, for just a few moments, I'd like for us to think about what this really means. I'd like for us to think about how that this statement really reflects so much more. And the first thing that I have to realize is that there is no idol, no carving, no molded image, nothing that is adequate to represent God. Nothing. Notice, for instance, Deuteronomy 4, verses 15 through 19. Take careful heed to yourselves, for you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, lest you act corruptly and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of any figure in the likeness of male or female. God said, I didn't let you see a representation of me because had you sent a representation of me, you would have tried to make an idol out of it. You know what's happened so many times? We have people who are creating statues, drawings of Jesus because they want to represent exactly what he looks like. But God said, I was careful at Mount Horeb not to show you any form because I know what you people would do. He said, not likeness of male or female, verse 17, the likeness of any animal that's on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps upon the ground, or the likeness of any fish that is beneath the earth. And take heed lest you lift your eyes to heaven. And when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, and all the host of heaven, and you feel driven to worship them, serve them, which the Lord your God has given to all the peoples under the whole heaven as a heritage, God said, I don't want you to worship any created thing that I have made for you, whether it's the sun, moon, and stars, or a person, or anything else. You know why? Nothing is adequate to represent God. Nothing fulfills the fullness of who God is. There are several passages in my estimation that really bring this thought out. If you go with me to Isaiah chapter 40, I know this is a 10 verses. It's a rather lengthy reading. But it really makes a point about this. To whom will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to him? The workman molds an image. The goldsmith overlays it or overspreads it with gold. The silversmith casts silver chains. Whoever is too impoverished for such a contribution chooses a tree that will not rot. He seeks for himself a skillful workman to prepare a carved image that will not totter. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Have you not been told from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and whose inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of earth useless. Scarcely shall they be planted. Scarcely shall they be sown. Scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth. 
when he will also blow on them and they will wither. And the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? He's saying there's nothing that you can find in all of creation that's like God. And he sums it up. Lift up your eyes on high and see he who created these things, who brings out their host by number, he calls them by name, by the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He's trying to say that anything that you would make is inadequate to compare to God. So there's no need to make any sort of an idol when you preach. You need to preach this. Because when Paul went to Athens and he was surrounded by a pluralistic society, there were gods to almost every kind of thing under the heavens in the city of Athens. Paul's spirit was stirred with him when he saw this. When you get to verses 24 and 25, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life and breath and all things. Paul said, you look around, and the real God doesn't need to dwell in a temple. Verse 29, therefore we are the offspring of God. We ought not to think that the divine nature is like Gold, silver, or stone, or something shaped by art and man's devising. There's no way to compare God to these idols. When Solomon built the temple, where they would go to offer their sacrifices to God, here's how he stated it when he dedicated that temple. But who is able to build him a temple since Heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain him. Who then am I that I should build a temple except to sacrifice before him? He said, this is not the building that contains God. You can't contain God in a building because you can't contain God in the heavens or even the heaven of heavens. That's the universe. You can't contain God. He said, the only purpose of this building is that we should offer sacrifices. But not only is nothing adequate to represent God, nothing is worthy of worship. Romans 1, verses 22 through 25, Paul talked about the Gentile mind. And he says, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And change the glory of the incorruptible God into the image made like corruptible man. Birds, four-footed animals, and creeping things. 
what ends up happening? God has to give people up. When they decide they're going to worship the creature rather than the Creator. There's so much in the Bible about the folly of a man bowing down before an idol. I will tell you that I would love to spend time just analyzing each of these passages. The best that I can do for this period of time is just make you aware of how foolish it is for a man to bow down to a piece of stone or to a piece of wood. The psalmist in Psalm 115, verses 4 through 8 would say, The idols, their idols, are silver and gold. The work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. They have feet, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who worship or make them or like them, so is everyone who trusts in them. Oh, yes, it represents a man, but what can that idol do? Absolutely nothing. But here is the key passage. In fact, I'd encourage you, if you are a person who writes in the front of your Bible, to write a little note about the folly of idolatry. Because Isaiah in chapter 44, verses 9 through 20, has such an eloquent picture of how stupid it is for a person to bow down before an idol. Those who make an image, all of them are useless. And their precious things shall not profit. They are their own witnesses. They neither see nor know that they may be ashamed. Who would form a God or mold an image? of that which profits him nothing. Surely all of his companions will be ashamed, and the workmen, they are mere men. Let them be gathered together, let them stand up, yet they shall fear, they shall be ashamed together. He's giving you the picture of those people who either make the idols or worship the idols. So now he starts picturing the, the construction. The blacksmith with tongs works one in the coal, fashions it with hammers, and works it with the strength of his arms. Even so, he's hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The craftsman stretches out his rule. He marks one out with chalk. He fashions it with a plane. He marks it out with a compass and makes it like the figure of a man, according to the beauty of man, that it remain in the house. He cuts down the cedars for himself and takes cypress and the oak. He secures it among the trees of the forest. He plants a pine, and the rain nourishes it. Then it shall be for a man to burn, for he will take some of it and warm himself. Yes, he kindles it and bakes bread. Indeed, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it a carved image and falls down to it. He burns half of it in the fire, and with this half he eats meat, roast a roast, and is satisfied. He warms himself and says, I'm warm, I've seen the fire. And the rest of it, he makes into a god his carved image. He falls down before it and worships it and prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. You think about that. Here's a man who cut down a tree. He said, Okay, I'm going to take this end of it. I'm going to cook with it, get warm with this end of it. I'm going to make a god out and I'm going to bow down and worship it. How foolish can you be? They do not know 
nor understand, for he has shut their eyes so they cannot see, and their hearts that they cannot understand. And no one considers in his heart, nor is there any knowledge or understanding to say, I burned half of it in the fire. Yes, I've also baked bread on its coals. Yes, I've roasted meat and eaten it, and I shall make the rest of it an abomination. Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver his soul nor say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? But Isaiah wasn't the only one to say that. Just a few short verses from Jeremiah, verses 3 through 5 of chapter 10. For the customs of the people are futile. One cuts a tree from the forest, works another. With an axe, they decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with nails and hammers so that it will not topple. I've often thought that's just about as silly as you can get. You put up an idol and you're going to worship it, but when you stand it up, it's top heavy and it falls over. So you've got to take a nail and hammer and nail it down so it won't fall over. They're upright like a palm tree. They cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot go by themselves. Do not be afraid of them. They cannot do evil, nor can they do good. You want this idol to move from here to the back, you've got to pick it up and take it. God's saying how foolish that is. Not only are they inadequate to represent God, they are foolish because they can do nothing. Now let me deal with the aspect that he gets to in verse 5. Visiting the iniquity upon the fathers, upon the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. How much punishment does any sin deserve? You try to figure out in your mind. Let's say, for instance, here's a mother who doesn't want a child and she gets an abortion. And you say, well, she should suffer because she took the life of that child. But you see, the truth is, we don't see the big picture. God might see much more than we see because God might see that that child that was killed was the one who's going to discover the cure for cancer. Or that child who was killed may have been destined to be a great gospel preacher and turn the hearts of many from the world to God. And then you say, oh, well then that murder was even more... I don't know the right punishment for any sin, but God does. And God knows that idolatry is so evil and so serious that the consequences were felt for four generations. You have a father who has a son and then a grandson and then a great-grandson. Four generations is how significant this was. Which means Christians need to be aware of modern-day gods. And somebody says, oh, but we don't fall down and we don't worship images. We do have sports idols. And we sometimes train our young boys and our young girls to want to be like these music stars. Sometimes we will sacrifice everything else for our entertainment. 
Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 says, Therefore put to death your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. If there's something that I covet so much that I'll do anything to get it, that has become my God. In Romans 6 and verse 16, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves as slaves to obey, you are that one slave whom you obey? Whether sin leading to death or obedience leading unto righteousness, some people are living their lives. They're devoted to things other than God. And I'm often amazed. You know what happens with the houses that people just have to have? They deteriorate. Sometimes they're knocked down. People work to have a beautiful car, and you know what happens after a few years? It's wore out. It rusts. Do you realize that some of the things that we devote ourselves to, that we're so silly, we're not any better than these idolaters of the Old Testament? The second command is about loyalty to the one and only true God. The fact that you and I put Him in first place and no other. And the truth is, there are no substitutes that will do. I can't say, as Aaron did, you see this idol here, this is the God that brought you up out of the land of Egypt. No. No substitutes will do. Nor are there any substitutes for obedience as well. God wants us to worship Him and worship Him only. And God does not want us to bow down to any sort of man-made, man-devised God because there's only one true living God. Tonight, the Lord's invitation is to you. It is expressed as it has been in so many places in the Bible that a person needs to come to God in faith, repenting of their sins, confessing that faith, and being baptized. Having done so, God forgives your sins and adds you to His body, the church. We'd love for you to do that this evening. Or if you're a child of God needing prayers, we'll pray with you. Would you come while we stand and sing?